All right, well, thank you everyone for being here. Uh, my name is Eric Owens. Uh, I'm from Boston College, and uh, it's my pleasure to welcome you here this evening. I wanted to let you know that uh, this event is being audio recorded, and I think it will be available on the uh, AAR's website. So for, if you'd like to relive the moment or uh, share it with colleagues and friends afterwards, uh, I encourage you to do that. Another item of business, um, there is another terrific panel on uh, the same or a similar topic on Pope Francis, reformer or radical, that follows this session in a different room. Uh, it's run by the College Theology Society, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. in uh, Convention Center 339. So if you haven't gotten your fill today uh, in this panel, go out and get a cup of coffee and go to that one. I'm sure it'll be terrific. Um, I invite you to uh, tweet with uh, many others who are tweeting uh, on the hashtag AARSBL while you're here. And uh, one last item of business before we start, I'll ask that you turn the sound off of your phones or tablets or buzzers or whatever else you have that might make noise while we're in the, uh, in the midst of our conversation. So thank you and, and welcome again. Jorge Mario Bergoglio, the Jesuit Cardinal Archbishop of Buenos Aires, was elected Supreme Pontiff of the Roman Catholic Church and Bishop of Rome on March 13, 2013 following the extraordinary resignation of Pope Benedict XVI, the first papal resignation in nearly 600 years. The first pontiff from the Americas, Pope Francis leads the global Roman Catholic Church at a time of great turmoil and great promise. The 76-year-old Francis immediately set a new tone for the papacy, but the nature and impact of his leadership remains unclear this early in his reign. And I'm sure you've heard about his gestures of humility and his concern for the poor, his candor, or perhaps his uh, unrestrained style, you might say, with the press, his burgeoning Twitter feed at Pontifex with three and a half million user followers almost, or his movement toward major reform of the Curia. We're here today with this distinguished panel of experts to help us take stock of these developments and many more during the first eight months of Francis's papacy. Before I introduce our distinguished speakers, I'd like to thank a few people who made this uh, panel possible. Thank you, first of all, and especially to AAR President John Esposito and to Program Director Robert Puckett for making this space happen and for uh, bringing our guests uh, today. Uh, I also want to thank the chairs of the AAR's program units. Twenty separate program unit chairs responded to my request for suggestions for who ought to be on this panel today. Your guidance was invaluable to me, and I'm delighted to have such a diverse and wonderful panel as a result of that. Our structure for today each panelist will start uh, by speaking for 10 minutes uh, with opening remarks. Uh, panelists, you'll see a timer here in front of you, and you'll get a yellow light when you have two minutes left. Uh, nobody's going to yank you off the dais, but uh, uh, give it your best shot uh, to keep within your time. Um, then we'll move to a moderated discussion among the panelists. If there are any themes that uh, uh, raise questions or things that need to be uh, that we'd like to talk amongst ourselves, we'll do that for a while. And then we will move to an open Q&A uh, with you, the audience. There's microphones in the um, aisles there, and we'll ask you to line up and present. Um, uh, you can offer your short speeches disguised as questions, and we will respond in kind. Um, as always, our goal is a uh, lively, respectful, and thoughtful discussion, uh, and I hope that it will educate and engage uh, all of us. So I'm going to introduce each speaker as they come to the podium before their opening remarks uh, so that we don't have extended uh, introductions beforehand. Our first speaker will be Sister Joan Chittister, a Benedictine sister of Erie, Pennsylvania. 
Joan Chittister is a best-selling author and well-known international lecturer on topics of justice, peace, human rights, women's issues, and contemporary spirituality in the church and in society. She's founder and executive director of Bennett Vision, a resource for contemporary spirituality. She's the author of over 50 books, most recently, Following the Path, The Search for Passion, Purpose, and Joy from Random House. Sister Joan serves as a co-chair of the Global Peace Initiative of Women, a partner organization of the United Nations, facilitating a worldwide network of women peace builders, especially in the Middle East. Sister Joan's a past president of the Leadership Conference of Women Religious, an organization of the leaders of over 57,000 Catholic women religious in the United States, past president of the Conference of American Benedictine Prioresses, and was prioress herself of the Benedictine Sisters of Erie for 12 years. She holds a doctorate from Penn State University and a master's from the University of Notre Dame. And it's our great pleasure to welcome you here this morning, this evening. Uh, Chardin wrote once, the only task worthy of our efforts is to construct the future. My concern today is how to construct a new future for women around the world through the global outreach of the church. So it's a great sign to me personally of great hope to see a group as influential as yourselves willing to consider what this moment in church history requires of your own role in the development of Catholic thought and the construction of the future. Two insights from the past, I think, might give us a clue to how that happens. The first is from the, the sixth century philosopher Boethius, who wrote once, every age that is dying is simply a new age coming to life. But the second insight that really got my attention comes from Woody Allen, uh, 15th centuries later, who says, I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. I figured that both of those messages were very clear to people like us. First, continuity can go too far, and it has never given us much of a head start on the world. And second, to fail to face the moment we're in can destroy the future that is coming with or without us, and whether we like it or not, this is a crossover moment in history. This is the moment when history discovered women. In fact, intelligent men now, as well as intelligent women, realize now that feminism is not about femaleness. It's not about female chauvinism or machismo feminismo either. And it's not about women wanting to act like men. Feminism is about allowing every single member of the human race to become a fully functioning human adult, to make choices at every level of society, to participate in the decision-making that affects their own lives, to be financially independent, to be safe on the streets and secure in their homes, to have a voice in the courts and the constitutional bodies of the world, to enjoy, in other words, full and equal civil rights. It's about bringing into public visibility and public agency the agendas, the insights, and the wisdom of the other half of the human race. It's about taking their ideas 
and plans seriously. No, no, correction. It's about taking the theology of creation seriously. It is, in other words, about this century's emancipation proclamation of women. And since it is 2,000 years after Jesus himself modeled it, it can hardly be argued that we're rushing things. <laughs> Three issues, I think, in particular, will measure the authenticity, the morality of the church's response to the woman's issue. These issues are the issues of poverty, maternity, and human agency, and are key to the way we'll be seen on this issue for years to come. Pope Francis, clearly sensitive to the question, has himself brought up the notion of launching a study of women, the very thought of which, coming out of Rome, is at least as earth-shaking as seriously expecting Rome to do something serious about it. If such a study of women is to advance the soul of the church, however, there are things to consider. First, for instance, the question of the role of women in church and society is not, notice, one of the 39 areas of concern listed in the new survey of Catholic issues. So, a woman must ask herself, how really important is the role and rights of woman as woman seen in shaping even the family, really? Second, the Pope's recent statement on women to the Women's Council on the Laity in Rome concentrated almost entirely on women's maternity, wonderful as it is, which occupies at best only about 20 years of a modern woman's life. Most modern women, demographic data indicates, live at least another 35 to 40 years after their youngest child leaves the home. And after that, what's her role then? Is maternity her only value, her perpetual definition? What does she do now, then, with her personal talents, her insights, her gifts given, they taught us, for the sake of the world? And how does the world make up for the loss of such experience, such intelligence, and such deep wisdom of the other half of the human race? If women are not expected not even welcome to its shaping. But without the input of women, humanity sees with only one eye, hears with one ear, and thinks with one half of the human brain. And read your papers, it shows. Or more, why is a woman defined by maternity, whether she is a mother or not, when a man is rarely, if ever, defined by his paternity, rather than his leadership, his genius, his heroism. Finally, Pope Francis says in his now famous Civilta Cattolica interview, quote, we have to work harder to develop a profound theology of the woman. Only by making this step will it be possible to better reflect on their function within the church. But the question there is, who will do this reflecting? The same clerical patriarchal types who have been doing it for the last 2,000 years, when the church fathers 
with, with uh, holy wisdom first said that women, quote, have the malice of boat dragons and asps, among other things that they had studied and, and concluded. Or when Thomas Aquinas called women misbegotten males, not the gold standard, apparently, of humanity. And medieval theologians declared that women were by nature subservient, secondary in the order of creation, more emotional than rational. Confess, you know that. And today, here and now, the U.S. Conference of Bishops can still say in their most recent documents that, quote, forms of feminism hostile to the church are among matters of deep concern, but they never go on to mention at all that male chauvinism or the very structures of patriarchy is any kind of concern at all. Despite centuries of deaconesses, a chorus of women saints, the Teresa's, Catherine's, Hildegard's, and legions of women like them, despite hundreds of years of women religious administrators who built the very social service systems of the church, its outreach centers, to illiterate, enslaved, and forgotten girls and women. The church has never defined women as fully independent beings, let alone adults. And most important of all, of all on what anthropology and theology and science from what century will they ground their ideas about women this time? What feminist writers what feminist researchers, what feminist philosophers and scientists and theologians and canonists, both women and men, will be brought to the tables to shape this theology, this time? Will it be simply another round of men do this and women do that? A dual anthropology that sees women as caregivers alone and men as world builders exclusively and an insight which I consider... Uh, an insult to every man walking the globe. An anthology, I'm sorry, anthropology that denies our common humanity, our common human nature, basically and entirely, despite our Dorothy Days and Raisa Maritans, despite our Mother Joneses and Rosemary Houghtons as national leaders and bona fide theologians. And if so, what can possibly be done to save a world such division has made? The fact is that religion, all religions, have been used to justify the oppression, the servitude, the invisibility of women for century after century after century. Indeed, religion after Jesus has an historic lot to repent where women are concerned Catholicism and Christianity in general among them. And as a result of such poor study in the past, those last times around, religious as it may have called itself, sincere as it possibly was, at this hour, everywhere on the planet, women are still today two-thirds of the illiterate of the world, Women are still two-thirds of the hungry of the world. Women are still two-thirds of the poorest of the poor everywhere in this world as we sit here pursuing academic topics that are not changing our world.
That can't be an accident. That's a policy. Someone somewhere has decided that women need less, women deserve less, and women are worthy of less than men, and all of those decisions done in the name of God. By the time these apologists get done talking, God is the only sexist left in the room. Pope Francis has won the heart of the world by being humble, simple, and pastoral, the warm and caring face of this church, a man like Jesus, who is a man of the poor. But no one, no one can say that they are for the poor as Jesus was and do nothing, nothing, nothing for the equality of women. And yet, when the women religious of LCWR, the Leadership Conference of Women Religious in this country, commit themselves again, as they have so often in the past, to do for women what must be done for the sake of the gospel and the good of the church, it's called radical feminism, and they are investigated for heresy. Poverty, human anthropology, and the full humanity of women are indeed among the issues that will measure both this papacy and this church as it moves again from an age that is dying into a new age that is coming to life. Otherwise, when death comes, we may all be there to see it. Pope Francis has said the genius of women must be evermore a vital strength of the church in the next millennium, just as it was in the first community of Christ's disciples. That statement, those questions, lead to another continually wearying question for women, if not now, when? Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you, sister. Thank you, sister. I told you we'd have a lot to talk about. Uh, Those of you who are standing in the back, please come join us unless you plan to slip out uh, unannounced. I can see you, so you're not slipping out unannounced. Uh, There are chairs up here, and we'd like you to be comfortable and a part of the conversation. Um, Our next speaker is uh, Dr. Ingrid Madsen. Uh, Dr. Madsen is a Muslim religious leader, a scholar of Islamic studies, and an expert in interfaith relations. Since 2012, she has held the London and Windsor Community Chair in Islamic Studies at Huron University College at the University of Western Ontario in Canada. Previously, she was Professor of Islamic Studies and Christian-Muslim Relations at Hartford Seminary in Hartford, Connecticut, where she established and directed the first accredited graduate program for Muslim chaplains in North America and served for a few years as Director of the McDonald Center for the Study of Islam and Christian-Muslim Relations. Originally from Canada, where she studied philosophy and fine arts, uh, she moved to the United States, where she earned her PhD in Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations from my alma mater, the University of Chicago, in 1999. She's the author of the academic bestseller, The Story of the Quran, as well as numerous articles on Islamic ethics, gender, and social issues. From 2001 to 2010, Dr. Matson served as Vice President 
then president of the Islamic Society of North America, or ISNA, the first woman to serve in either position. It's a pleasure to have you, Dr. Matson. I really, I have to say, it's just such an honor to um, to speak on the same panel after one of my longtime heroes, Sister Joan, and uh, just really energized by what you have to say. Uh, in my few minutes, I wanted to say to speak a little bit about um, what Pro Francis means for for me and for other Muslims. Uh, and to begin, we have to really uh, contextualize that um, in, with the question: What did Pope Benedict? mean for Muslims. Uh, and first, I, I really want to say a word of praise for, for Benedict, and this is a personal view from someone who has been interested for a long time in the way religious communities are governed, and the persistent challenge of having religious institutions embody and reflect our purported religious values. I think he set a great example in stepping down. Um, he wasn't too proud or embarrassed to say that he was not up to the job either because he was lacking the health, energy, or skills to deal with some major institutional dysfunctions. So I think that was um, important for all religious leaders, as an example. On the other hand, there's no doubt that Pope Benedict had a huge impact on Christian-Muslim relations. His notorious Regensburg Address was hurtful to Muslims, precipitated communal conflict, and damaged trust between Christians and Muslims that had been built up over the last few decades. What is important to understand, however, is that although the majority of ordinary Muslims perhaps were offended primarily by the derogatory remarks he made about the Prophet Muhammad, for many Muslim leaders what was more alarming was the fact that Benedict spoke these words in the context of an argument in favor of the essential Christian character of Europe. Thus, Benedict seemed to be allying the Roman Catholic Church with Islamophobic movements across Europe and the West. This, I believe, is why Muslim leaders put an unusual amount of thought and energy into their responses to him, resulting in a group of them issuing a common word, the beginning of one of the most successful interfaith initiatives in modern times. As the Quran says, perhaps you hate a thing and it is good for you. So out of what he did came a fantastic and fruitful and ongoing uh, initiative between Christians and Muslims and beyond. If we look at Pope Francis from this perspective, then, there are a few things that Muslim leaders see. First, he has made clear that he will not be attacking Islam as a religion or the Prophet Muhammad as a person. In his Ramadan letter to Muslims that he himself wrote this year, Francis said, turning to mutual respect in interreligious relations, especially between Christians and Muslims, we are called to respect the religion of the other, its teachings, its symbols, its values. Particular respect is due to religious leaders and to places of worship. How painful are attacks on one another of these? So what's important is that we won't be ambushed again. And that's an important message that where he seemed to be speaking directly to uh, uh, his predecessor's uh, speech. However, as importantly um, for Christian-Muslim relations is the fact that Pope Francis does not seem to be focused on the issue of European identity, a clash of civilizations, or other divisive nationalistic discourses that are really so 20th century. He will not use Muslims in an attempt to scare a continually secularizing Europe back to claiming some essential Christian identity. Most Muslims 
are theological exclusivists and believe Catholics to be so as well. They do not expect the head of the Catholic Church to affirm the validity of Islam or the prophethood of Muhammad, but they do want the Church to affirm their human and civic rights. In other words, you can tell me I'm going to hell, just don't deport me. In short, in the eyes of many Muslims, we could perhaps say that Pope Francis is following the physician's motto of first do no harm, and for many Muslims, that is really all they want from him. At the same time, it's not easy to rebuild broken trust, and there are significant segments from the Catholic and Muslim communities who are militantly, sometimes literally, ideologically opposed to each other. I solicited uh, opinions about Pope Francis uh, by speaking to people over the past few months and also I admit through my Twitter feed. And this person who goes by the Twitter name Democracy Hypocrisy, AKA Chicken Kofta, um, which makes me think I should go by the, by the tagline uh, a six inch veggie delight from Subway, <laughs> wrote, the ver wrote this. From the very start, you can't help wonder who he aspires to be like when he chose the name Francis, based on the original Francis. Read about the original Francis he's named after and his behavior and intolerance. Interesting, because for many uh, people who have been involved in interfaith work, there's been this um, uh, beautiful picture of Francis being one of the initiators of interfaith dialogue. And on the other side of the divide, I read an article in a conservative Catholic journal from 2008 praising Pope Benedict's criticism of Islam and arguing that Benedict was, in fact, acting in the spirit of the crusader saint, none other than Francis. Urging Catholics to read a book called Francis of Assisi and the Conversion of Muslims, the blogger said, if you are tired of portraits of St. Francis as little more than a Birkenstock-clad hippie, a Peace Corps social worker, or an effeminate tofu-eating Green Party activist, read this book. Um, so this is all about why, why crusading against Muslims is great, and if you can't do it in a military way, then at least um, a very forceful attack on Islam and Muslims. I'm sure this person is not very happy that a few years later, the Pope became uh, a Francis as well. There are other Muslims, however, like uh, many of my, uh, those who spoke to me through uh, social media, who see Francis not primarily through the lens of Christian-Muslim relations, but through the lens of religion generally. That is, they see themselves not only as Muslims or simply as Muslims, but as part of a religious community. And Francis is one of the most prominent leaders of this religious community to which they belong. This group is delighted to see a religious leader speaking and acting in the manner they expect from a religious exemplar. I could say that many of these people take a kind of pride in him as a religious leader. So for example, here are some of the uh, uh, quotes from, the, from uh, three different people. I like him. His actions are far more progressive than previous popes, and he is swift to deal with corruption. Another said, he's the world's first Muslim pope. I love him. Even if I can't stick him with that label, I think he's undefinable as he transcends religion. Another says, for me, he is what the pope should be. He lives by example, speaks out against injustice, and doesn't let tradition dictate. 
Pope Francis seems fully aware of his role as a global figure, and as such, he doesn't simply operate in a Catholic bubble. Perhaps some people are getting a little carried away, but Twitter tends to do that, doesn't it? So uh, in sum, beyond um, he, and this is really predominantly what most Muslims have told me, they are just so relieved that there is someone in the news, a prominent religious leader who's in the news for doing good things, kind acts, uh, responsible acts, after um, years of just one scandal after another from every religious community. It is just uh, a relief. I think people feel relieved um, not, to, not to have another scandal, but to have a good example. And finally, beyond his serving as a good role model for religious leaders, many Muslims I've spoken to are excited by Francis's focus on the poor and marginalized. Many Muslims are deeply engaged in social, just, social justice and see in the Pope's words and actions not only validation for what they do, but perhaps the possibility of having more allies in the Catholic Church globally. So I would say in, in some, uh, Muslims feel optimistic. There's a large segment that will always be skeptical that is really uh, stuck in an ideological stance vis-a-vis uh, -vis anything that comes out um, from Christianity or the Catholic Church. But I think, I think we're, we've had a good start. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, as I mentioned, there's more seats for those of you in the back. I'm going to keep asking. Um, our next speaker uh, moving down the alphabet is uh, Professor Ivan Petrella. He earned his PhD in religious studies and law from Harvard University's Committee on the Study of Religion. Um, in two, uh, and until 2010 was a tenured professor at the University of Miami's Department of Religious Studies. He currently resides in Argentina, where he's a professor at the University of Ditella and the University of San Andres. He's academic director of Fondacion Pensar, and pardon my terrible Spanish, and was recently elected to the legislature of the city of Buenos Aires. He's the author of The Future of Liberation Theology, An Argument and Manifesto, and I'm sorry, an argument, and another book, Manifesto, Beyond Liberation Theology, a polemic, and editor of Latin American Liberation Theology, The Next Generation. Thank you very much for being here. Can you hear me if I speak at this distance of the microphone? Yes, okay. Pope Francis, as we know, is the first pope from the Americas. And as such, his election was greeted jubilantly from Obama all the way down to Nicolás Maduro in Venezuela, who claimed that Chavez, having risen to heaven, surely must have played a role in the election of a South American pontiff. In fact, in the Americas at least, the only place where Francis' election was greeted with a measure of concern and consternation was, of all places, in Argentina. But not by everyone, of course. The great mass of Argentine Catholics celebrated his election. Yet, when Argentine President Cristina Fernández de Kirchner finally spoke about the event as an aside during a political act, if you watch the videotape, you can hear some of her followers at the political act start to boo. And her words were lukewarm. 
as she welcomed the historic election of, I quote, a Latin American pope rather than an Argentine pope, thus placing a measure of distance between the new head of the Catholic Church and the nation that she governs. Now, what made her uncomfortable, I want to suggest in these minutes, is a political message that Jorge Bergoglio preached as Archbishop of Buenos Aires between 1998 and 2013 and President of the Argentine Episcopal Council from 2005 to 2011. And it is the message that while he developed it in Argentina, is of course relevant for all of Latin America, but also for the rest of the globe. And this message, I want to suggest, has at least three parts. Part one, the need for leaders that display transformational rather than transactional leadership. Now, this is a distinction that developed first in political science is applied also in organizational psychology. But transactional leadership is one that focuses on what the leader gives to the whole, what the leader can give to a population, and then what each follower in the population can give back to the leader, creating a system of give and take, of exchange. Now, notice that in politics, especially in Latin American politics, transactional leadership can very easily fall into the trap of clientelism, where political machines distribute favors in exchange for votes, a give and take. Transformational leadership, on the other hand, seeks through example to generate a change upon those who are being led. And I'm sure we can mention examples. Francis carries his own suitcase. He refuses to live in the papal palace. He washes the feet of convicts. He calls for a poor church for the poor. Now what really matters, however, in transformational leadership is not the particular example, but the purpose behind the example. That is, the example seeks to awaken the conscience of others so that they have the capacity to lead and to enact a change within them. Transformational leadership seeks to transfer leadership to the people so they can become masters of their own destiny. In politics, therefore, it is the complete opposite of dependency upon the politician, upon the state, or upon elites. It democratizes leadership and empowers civil society and ordinary citizens, and in so doing, imparts a message, a message that questions the means through which many politicians rule and govern, not just in Argentina or Latin America, but in other parts of the world. And I suspect, and I won't bring this up now, we can bring it up in the exchange later if we want, I suspect this has something to do with his ambivalence towards liberation theology as well. The second part, the need for a politics of unity and service. In an article that he published in 1989 in the journal Stromata, which is a, an Argentine journal, titled The Need for a Political Anthropology, a Pastoral Problem, Bergoglio outlined his understanding of politics and its role in nation building. Politics, he argued, I quote, is the art of uniting to then build. The unity of a society is built on constant cooperative effort to overcome divides. The end of politics is not to reform structures, but rather the search for unity and inner harmony, which is the only path through which structures can be reformed, end of quote. Now we can discuss this also later because there's a lot that can be wrong with this view of unity as well. 
But the need to strive towards unity was a constant of his work and his preaching in Argentina and beyond. One example, within society, Bergoglio was one of the main figures behind what was called the Argentine Dialogue of 2002. That after Argentina suffered the world's largest debt default in modern economic history, riots and a succession of five presidents over two weeks, brought together significant social actors and citizens from different parts of society to try to unite around a vision of the nation in an attempt to restore what was called the nation's health. And it's framed, if you read the documents that were spearheaded by Begolio, it reads as transformational leadership. That is, I quote, to recover our, Argentines, confidence in ourselves and relaunch our potential. That is, to once again foster confidence in the people themselves, not what the government can give, transformational leadership. Another example, unity among religions. Bergoglio has been a constant proponent of interreligious dialogue. That is the search for a common ground between religions. In Argentina, he made a point of always praying with rabbis, imams, evangelicals. Argentina, it should be noted, is the country in Latin America that's blessed with the largest Jewish and Muslim populations in the region. That is, we have the largest Jewish and Muslim populations in Latin America. He had that in mind, fostering always interreligious dialogue. Argentina was also the first country, and Mergoglio played a role in this, to issue a declaration signed by the leaders of the three main Abrahamic faiths condemning the September 11 attacks on the Twin Towers. Another example, we had nation unity in terms of Argentina, religious unity, international unity. His first pastoral visit outside of Rome was to the island of Lampedusa to offer a mass for migrants who risked their lives on rickety boats to reach a different shore and a different life. I quote, we have lost a sense of brotherly responsibility and have forgotten how to cry for migrants at sea. Globalization is often described as the shortening of distances thanks to technological advances in communication. Brotherly responsibility, the distance that we have not yet shortened, he suggests, is that between who we perceive as us, as part of a common community, and who we keep distant as is them. The final part of his message is the fight against corruption. Francis as Pope has said that we are all sinners and worthy of God's love. He has struck a softer tone on traditionally divisive issues, such as homosexuality and divorce. He is seen by many as a sympathetic and compassionate figure, understanding and forgiving of human frailty. When it comes to the issue of corruption, however, that understanding and forgiveness is nowhere to be found. In one homily, he uses the parable of the wicked tenants, those who keep the vineyard for themselves and murder the rightful heir, as the model of the corrupt. The corrupt, unlike the sinner, has severed his or her relationship to God and believes in his or her own self-sufficiency. He has compared the corrupt to Judas and the Antichrist. But if we ask more concretely, what does he have in mind? Who does he have in mind? 
another homily leaves little doubt. I quote, Whoever gives money to the church but robs from the state, robs from the poor and is a false Christian. Jesus says, I'm still quoting, It would be better for him if a millstone were put around his neck and be thrown into the sea. Jesus does not speak of forgiveness here. End of quote. Francis has described people who engage in corruption as whitewashed tombs. They appear beautiful from the outside, but inside they're full of dead bones and putrefaction. A life based on corruption, he is called, varnished putrefaction. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right. He has said that parents who make money through bribes or corrupt practices have, I quote, lost their dignity and fed their children unclean bread. He has compared receiving bribes to a drug and that people can become dependent on the habit of bribes. And he has prayed, I quote, that the Lord may change the hearts of those who worship the kickback God, comparing corruption, therefore, to idolatry. It's almost as if, in these homilies, he's developing a new moral theology where practically all sins can be forgiven except one, corruption, understood specifically as political and economic corruption. That is, politicians who enrich themselves in office by stealing public funds, the collusion between politicians and business interests, they are the object of God's wrath. That is, a leadership that transforms and empowers, a politics that unites, corruption as an unforgivable sin. This is the message that he developed in Argentina, but that clearly has global implications. It applies in Buenos Aires, but it applies in Wall Street. It applies in Argentina, but it applies in Brazil or Egypt or Russia, and of course, the Vatican itself. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, our next speaker is uh, Father Thomas Reese, uh, SJ. Uh, Father Reese is a senior analyst uh, for National Catholic Reporter. He entered the Jesuits, uh, the Society of Jesus, in 1962 and was ordained in 1974. He was educated at St. Louis University, the Jesuit School of Theology at Berkeley, and at the University of California at Berkeley, where he received a PhD in political science. Father Reese worked in Washington as a writer and lobbyist for tax reform from 1975 to 1978. He was an associate editor of America Magazine, where he wrote on politics, economics, and the Catholic Church from 1978 to 1985, and editor-in-chief of that magazine from 1998 to 2005. He was a senior fellow at the Woodstock Theological Center from 1985 to 98, and again from 2006 until recently, uh, late in 2013. While at Woodstock, he wrote a trilogy of books on the organization and politics of the church. The first, Archbishop Inside the Power Structure of the American Catholic Church in 1989. The second, A Flock of Shepherds, a great name, the National Conference of Catholic Bishops in 1992. And finally, Inside the Vatican, the Politics and Organization of the Catholic Church in 1996. He's the editor of the Universal Catechism Reader, an analysis of the first draft of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and also of Episcopal Conferences, Historical, Canonical, and Theological Studies. Please welcome Father Thomas Reese.
Thank you very much. Uh, I'm very grateful to the panelists that preceded me that can put what I say in a larger uh, context. Uh, what I'm going to try and do is focus on uh, uh, three things. First, uh, what does the choice of the name Francis tell us about the priorities of this pope? Uh, second, what are his uh, priorities and uh, his pastoral priorities for the church? And then thirdly, I'm going to ju just briefly make some comments about his economic views, his views towards uh, capitalism and globalization. Uh, first, Francis, what's in a name? Well, when you pick the name, uh, we didn't know for sure which Francis uh, he was picking. Uh, most people presume uh, Francis of Assisi, but we Jesuits, of course, have a couple of other Francis's. Uh, Francis Xavier, and we thought, whoa, big Jesuit saint, uh, uh, that will show his missionary uh, orientation. And I kept mentioning uh, another uh, St. Francis uh, Jesuit, uh, Francis Borgia. Uh, and I thought maybe that was going to be the key uh, to his papacy. Uh, but he did clear things up uh, within a couple of days and explained that it was St. Francis of Assisi that he, uh, for the reason he picked this name. Francis was known for five things, quickly. He was known for, as a reformer. Uh, when he was praying, he heard God speak to him, rebuild my church, which you see falling into ruin. So St. Francis of Assisi started the reform movement of the Franciscans. Secondly, he was known for his life of poverty, the simplicity of his lifestyle. Uh, again, something that we see already in Pope Francis. Third, he was known for his love for the poor, Again, we see this as a signature feature of the papacy of Pope Francis. And fourth, uh, he, at least in terms of mythology, he was known as uh, a man of peace uh, during the Crusades. I will leave it to uh, Professor, uh, Dr. Matson and uh, historians to fight out how much of this is mythology and how much is correct. But in, certainly, he's... That's kind of the way he is known in general by most people as being a man of peace and of interreligious understanding. And finally, he was known as a man who loved creation, loved nature. We've all seen these statues of St. Francis with the birds and the animals. This is a pope who is going to have protection and love for the environment as a high priority uh, while he is pope. What are his pastoral priorities uh, for the church. Uh, first of all, I think he's constantly is talking about the church being a poor church for the poor. So we see this, his own personal uh, simplicity of life is something that he wants to see throughout the church. And he's modeling that now for priests, for bishops, for everyone in the church. But it's a poor church for the poor. And we are going to see that uh, a heavy priority on issues of justice, of charity, and of love uh, directed towards the poor. This is going to be a major priority of this pope. And we've seen it in all the kinds of things he said. Secondly, he wants to see the church as a reconciler 
he uses all these wonderful images of the church. You know, the church is a field hospital that binds wounds and warms hearts. He's, he talks about uh, the church being a place where people experience compassion and mercy and reconciliation. These are the themes that he is picking up when he talks about the church. Uh, it's not a church that's divisive. It's not a church that keeps drawing lines. Uh, it's a church that brings people together, unites them, and reconciles them. Uh, he also uses the, the image of the church as a mother. Uh, you know, when you go home for Thanksgiving and you walk in the door, what do you want? You want a hug. You know, you want to experience love, the embrace uh, of your parents. And be, to be told, hey, welcome, we're happy you're here, we love you, we're so happy that you're here. You don't want to hear a nagging parent. You know, when did you get that ring in your nose? <laughs> Who are you living with now? Uh, no, we want to be embraced with love, and that's what he wants from the church. He talks about the church of the heart. He says that we have reduced our way of speaking about mystery to rational explanations. But for the ordinary people, the mystery enters through the heart. And this is something that is extremely important for him. And he expands on that by saying that the church needs a simple message. Quote, we lose people because they don't understand what we are saying, because we have forgotten the language of simplicity and import and intellectualism foreign to our people. This is not an academic. This is a pastor. The last two popes were academics. They were all into clarifying doctrine being very clear to their students, making sure they get the right definitions memorized and down. This is a man who rather who sat in the slums and homes of people and talked to them about the love of God, listened to their crises, their problems, their hurts, uh, and reached and wanted to bring to them the love, the mercy, and compassion of God. This is a man who wants who speaks in the language of the gospel, not in the language of the catechism. He also talks about a church of Emmaus. And by that, he means, you know, the two people who left Jerusalem, discouraged. One out of three Catholics in the, who were raised Catholics in the United States have left the church. He wants those people. Those are the people he's talking to. He's not preaching to the choir. He's reaching out to them. And in the past, we tended to blame them for leaving the church. He says, no, we need to look at ourselves. Quote, perhaps the church appeared too weak, too distant from their needs, too cold, too caught up with itself, a prisoner of its own rigid formulas, a relic of the past, unfit for new questions. Perhaps the church could speak to people in their infancy, but not to those who have come of age. We need a church unafraid of going forth into their night 
capable of meeting them on their way, capable of entering into their conversation, able to dialogue with those disciples who, having left Jerusalem behind, are wandering aimlessly alone with their own disappointment, disillusioned by a Christianity now considered barren. He gets it. You know, that is the, what he, the kind of church he wants that reaches out to people. Finally, just a few words on his economic views. In brief, he's to the left of Obama. Not only is he to the left of Obama, he is to the left of Nancy Pelosi. This is a man who's highly critical of capitalism, highly critical of the impact of globalization on workers in the third world. Capitalism, he says, fosters a worldly spirit that forgets the act of adoring God means to submit to his will, to his justice, to his law, to his prophetic inspiration. He goes on to say, capitalism fosters a civilization of consumerism, of hedonism, of political arrangements between the powers or political sectors and the reign of money. This is a guy who will be very comfortable with the folks that occupy Wall Street. And he goes on to be very critical of globalization, especially what he calls a globalization that brings a uniformity that is not human. In other words, a McDonald's and a Kentucky Fried Chicken in every city in the world. Uh, But he says that kind of globalization is, quote, essentially imperialistic and instrumentally liberal, which, of course, he means libertarian. In the end, it is a way to enslave nations. I think some people would think he might even be anti-American. He goes on to be critical of those who, you know, take their money out of countries where they operate their business. And he says that it is sinning to do that because he is not honoring honoring with that money the country to which he owes his wealth or the people that work to generate it. Uh, He also calls on governments to do the work of making jobs available, to, to bring about jobs for people. Because for him, there's no, nothing more important than having people with their jobs. So in brief, what do I see with Pope Francis? I see a man who wants a pastoral church preaching a gospel-based message of love, compassion, and justice, not a nagging church wagging its finger at people. He wants a Christianity spread through witness, not through argument, that goes to the heart, not the head. He wants an entrepreneurial church, that's my word, not his, willing to leave the sacristy and going into the streets. Quote, I prefer a church that makes mistakes because it is doing something to one that sickens because it stays shut in. Thank you.
Thank you, Father Reese, and thank you all. Um, our uh, final uh, speaker for our first round before we start to mix it up on our panel and turn to questions from the audience is George Weigel. Uh, he's a distinguished senior fellow of the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. He's a Catholic theologian and one of America's leading public intellectuals. He holds EPPC's William E. Simon Chair in Catholic Studies. He's the author or editor of over 20 books, including The End and the Beginning, Pope John Paul II, The Victory of Freedom, The Last Years, The Legacy, from 2010. Also, Practicing Catholic, Essays, Historical, Literary, Sporting, and Elegiac, from 2012. And most recently, Evangelical Catholicism, Deep Reform in the 21st Century Church, from 2013. His book, Witness to Hope, the biography of Pope John Paul II, was published to wide acclaim in the fall of 1999 and has since been translated into 12 languages with a Chinese edition currently in progress. A frequent guest on television and radio, he's also Vatican analyst for NBC News. His weekly column, The Catholic Difference, is syndicated to 60 newspapers. Mr. Weigel received a BA from St. Mary's Seminary and University in Baltimore and an MA from the University of St. Michael's College in Toronto. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Professor Owens, and good afternoon, everyone. The first eight months of Pope Francis's pontificate have seemed to me, in retrospect, to have been a kind of Rorschach test in which various parts of the Catholic world have seen their dreams or their fears with a clarity and conviction that frankly has little to do with either the history of Jorge Mario Bergoglio's ministry as priest and bishop or his most consequential early decisions as pope. I'd like to try to cut through some of these fantasies and describe with a bit more precision the man who his work and witness I've admired for over a decade, the man with whom I surveyed the global Catholic situation in a lengthy conversation in Buenos Aires some 10 months before his election as Pope, the man as described by some of his closest associates and friends in a recently published book of interviews edited by Alejandro Bermudez and suggest what all of this might mean for his pontificate. First, this man is a radically converted Christian disciple who has known the mercy of God in his own life and who wants to share that experience, wants others to share that experience and know that healing that come with friendship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, he is, as he described himself in Civiltà Cattolica, a son of the church who believes and teaches what the Catholic Church believes and teaches. Third, he is completely dedicated to the new evangelization, to a radical recentering of the church on the imperative of mission 
and to a rediscovery by each of the world's 1.2 billion Catholics of the evangelical or missionary vocation into which he or she was baptized. Thus, one key to understanding Pope Francis, I would suggest, can be found in the 2007 Aparecida document of the Fifth General Conference of uh, Bishops' Conferences of Latin America and the Caribbean, in which the bishops of Latin America, led by then Cardinal Bergoglio, took a radical option for a robustly evangelical Catholicism, understanding that a kept church, a church kept either in the past by legal establishment or in recent centuries by cultural habit, is a church that has no future and indeed deserves to have no future. In this respect, perhaps the most striking memory I took, I take from my hour and 15 minutes with Cardinal Bergoglio last year uh, was his failure to do what every other senior Latin American churchman I had ever met had done within 15 minutes of opening a conversation, namely complain about wealthy North American evangelical and Pentecostalist Protestants coming south of the Rio Grande to sheep rustle. I noted to the cardinal that he hadn't raised that in the first 45 minutes of our conversation, and he said to me, if we are losing faithful, that is because we are not proclaiming the gospel. Fourth, Pope Francis is a reformer who will measure authentic reform in the church by two criteria. The criterion of truth, does this proposed reform comport with what John Paul II called the symphony of Catholic truth? And the criterion of mission, does this proposed reform contribute to the church's mission effectiveness? That will be, those will be the criteria by which the Pope undertakes the radical reform of the engine room, as Ronald Knox used to call it, the Roman Curia, which was a major reason for his election. Fifth, Pope Francis is a pastor who is deeply concerned for the flock, draws strength from the flock, challenges the flock to make good decisions, and is deeply respectful of popular piety. Sixth, he is, by the testimony of those who have known him for decades, an efficient executive who is not afraid to make decisions. Seventh, he is a literary man, well-read theologically, but more given to literary references than scholarly theological references in his catechesis and preaching. He's also a man of the arts. I was particularly touched in the Civiltà Cattolica interview, which drew so much attention, by his reference to Marc Chagall's White Crucifixion, which I've long regarded as one of the great religious 
paintings of the 20th century, perhaps the greatest religious painting of the 20th century, and which I have had hanging in my study for the past 30 years. Eighth, Pope Francis is a secure man determined to remain himself, not from ego, but from an interior spiritual freedom from which he lives. A Christocentric freedom, the freedom of the radically converted disciple, which has made him, as his friend Luisa Rosell uh, has said, a man of steel. Ninth, he is a man who grasps, I think at considerable depth, the nature of the great cultural crisis of post-modernity. The crisis of a new Gnosticism, which, as he put it in a letter to the Carmelites of Buenos Aires, is, quote, a move by the father of lies who intends to confuse and deceive the children of God. Tenth, and finally, he is a man who, as the director of the Argentine Catholic magazine, Criteria, Jose Maria Poirier put it, wants a holy church, or at least one with a great striving for virtue. And he wants that because he knows that the new evangelization, the evangelical Catholicism of the future, will convert the world at least as much by example as by argument. In brief, he seems to me the pope who will complete a dramatic historic transition in the Catholic Church. The transition from the Church of the Counter-Reformation to the Church of the New Evangelization. From the Church of the Council of Trent to the Church of the Second Vatican Council. A process of dynamic development begun in the pontificate of Leo XIII deepened during the Catholic Renaissance of the mid-20th century, accelerated by Vatican II in its authoritative interpretation by John Paul II and Benedict XVI, whose pontificates set the stage for Pope Francis and with whom his pontificate will be in essential continuity. He described himself on that dramatic night of March 13th as a pope called from the ends of the earth. And yet, the more one looks into his life, his thought, his teaching, his pastoral ministry, one sees that down there at the ends of the earth, he had penetrated very deeply to the core of much of the crisis of Western civilization in the late 20th and early 21st centuries, which he perceives as a battlefield on which there are a lot of walking wounded waiting to hear the message of the divine mercy that he believes comes most powerfully through an encounter with Jesus Christ. Thank you. Thank you so much to all of our panelists. Um, we have, they have, laid the table and now let us uh, continue the feast 
uh, with the conversation here and then also with you in the audience. Um, one thing I'd like to, I, I'm going to use this microphone so that we don't have to uh, share more of these here. I'll just stand as, as you all speak. One question, uh, you've covered so many topics, all of you, uh, and, and a wonderful start to our, to our evening session. But one important thing that didn't arise uh, is, uh, was the Pope's outspoken efforts uh, to resist Western bombing of Syria uh, recently. And I wonder, I, it's not directed for anyone in particular, but I wonder if, if any of you would like to speak for a bit uh, what you saw, what we can expect from the Pope in the future, and maybe how this relates to peace-building efforts, to uh, the Pope's role as a global leader, uh, and perhaps uh, any sort of shift, if, if any, uh, on terms of uh, violence and nonviolence. Father Reese, would you like to start? Is there an on button? I'm not sure. It's on now. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> You've been silenced. There we go. Yep. There we are. We got it. Thank you. Yep. Um, on that, I would agree with George Weigel, who talked about the continuity between the papacies of John Paul and Benedict and Francis. Because uh, John Paul II and uh, Pope Benedict were both against both Persian Gulf Wars, Persian Gulf War I and Persian Gulf War II. And so we see uh, here uh, that uh, uh, Pope Francis is listening to the Christians in Syria, listening to the Christians in, middle, in the Middle East, and responding and speaking uh, both for them and for uh, diplomatic solutions to, to the issue. Uh, whether it's going to happen or not, I don't know. But I mean that it's, uh, but that is in continuity with what we've seen in earlier papacies. Mm -hmm. Either one. Thank you. Uh, I think that's exactly right. But it 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 raises all sorts of uh, questions. Uh, John Paul II who in many respects was the most politically consequential pope since perhaps Innocent III, uh, was that consequential worldly figure, uh, not as a politician or a statesman, but as, as an arouser of consciences. I was very struck by Professor Petrella's uh, uh, reference to transformational leadership arousing consciences for empowerment. Well, that's exactly, of course, what John Paul II did in Poland from June 2nd to June 10th, 1979, which led 13 months later to the rise of the Solidarity Movement, which led over the next uh, decade to the collapse of European communism. That was the work of a pastor, fundamentally. This raises all sorts of questions, as, as Tom Reese knows as well as I do, uh, for the exercise of the papacy. Uh, the Holy See, which is the legal embodiment of the ministry of the Bishop of Rome as universal pastor of the church, has dip full diplomatic relations with, what is it, Tom, 185, 188 uh, countries around the world right now. Uh, the Holy See is a player in world politics, uh, and in some respects still does so according to the standard rules of the diplomatic game. Uh, 
That position has been built up, not without difficulty, over the past century. Yet now we have popes who speak primarily not as diplomatic players, who speak as voices of moral reason, who speak as Christian pastors, who summon the world to prayer. I happen to be in Vilnius, Lithuania, of all places, the day of the uh, vigil for uh, peace in Syria, and the entire cathedral church uh, of Vilnius was packed uh, that night for a lengthy uh, prayer vigil and celebration of the Eucharist. Now, there's a tension between these two facts of papal interaction with world politics. And I, for one, am going to find it absolutely fascinating to see how uh, Pope Francis uh, navigates that tension. Professor Matson, would you like to speak on this? You know, minorities in dictatorships, whether they're religious or ethnic or racial minorities, always face a terrible quandary uh, and inevitably end up having to have some kind of special relationship with the authoritarian uh, ruler or dictator. Uh, this is the dilemma that Christians in the Middle East face. And um, I think it's really important that, that uh, for the sake of peace, first, even before Christian-Muslim relations, that the Pope doesn't oppose bombing Syria on the grounds of protecting Christians, because that really is perceived and functionally, instrumentally, comes down to protecting the dictator. If it's for the sake of a non-violent resolution, um, then as long as that's consistently applied, I think we can go get somewhere. But that would mean that uh, you know, rule under a dictator who tortures people is not peace. It's not peaceful for the majority of people. So it, it means that there's got to be a vision that is long, that is unfolded over the long term of speaking out when anyone's under oppression and before people revolt against a dictator and, and then there's bombing. So I think that this this situation of what's happening in the Middle East now is uh, naturally makes people who have political power have to make decisions about what to do with their political power and military and weapons and budgets. But um, as long as the Pope has a different methodology for engaging in this and he's clear and articulate and speaks out that his opposition to bombing is not just to protect the Christians there, but to um, have a different way of resolving uh, and, and bringing that country towards true peace, then, um, then I think we can get somewhere. I, I, th I think Dr. Matson brings up a, a deeper issue that, that I must admit uh, always troubles me after long, long years in the peace movement and associating with people whose lives are defined by peace. It's very hard for a woman to look at these issues as a woman and not get confused and not indicate that there is a confusion at the base of the church about the nature of violence, as far as I'm concerned. For instance, the church takes very strong and unequivocal stands uh, about um, things like contraception or abortion under any circumstances. 
uh, we understand that. We see that it's a, it's a pure position. But, and yet, uh, when, when, when men bomb anything or anyone, uh, when they make nuclear weapons, uh, the church talks about its uh, moral uncertainty. So you, you have to ask yourself, can some people kill anybody if it's, if it's good for their position at this time? But other people can never kill anybody without uh, um, threatening the morality of their own lives. We don't even instruct military chaplains to go onto military bases and announce that they renounce nuclear war or nuclear weapons. So what do we really believe about violence in relationship to what kind of people and what kind of issues? Uh, it's one thing to talk about Syria, but it's another thing to talk about if you're sometimes nonviolent, always nonviolent, um, uh, materially nonviolent, or just sexually violent at some times. Any, uh, Professor Petrella? No? Okay. Um, well, you'll be on the seat for the next question then, because um, you intriguingly uh, dangled the issue of liberation theology here at the podium. And, and I think all of us are uh, very interested to know both from your own perspective as an expert in liberation theology and as an Argentine, but also uh, the rest of the panel as well. This is a very um, momentous time uh, to think about liberation theology in the Catholic Church and also from outside of the Catholic Church. I wonder if you'd get us started with that conversation. Yeah, um, sure. I mean, there, were, there, there was a lot of discussion, you know, on how Francis relates to liberation theology. And, you know, recently he embraced Gustavo Gutierrez, you know, and that, and that got a lot of press. I mean, you know, he's written a little bit about it. There's an interview book um, published in Spanish under the title El Jesuita, I guess it's the Jesuit, you know, maybe in English, where he basically says that liberation theology had pros and cons, that the pro, the good side was this preferential option for the poor, but the bad side was, I quote, ideological deviations, you know, basically the kind of Marxist class analysis. And the reality is that in Argentina, liberation theology took a kind of different road that is, there's a subgroup of liberation theology that's called, in Argentina, Teología del Pueblo. You know, it's translated literally as theology of the people. Um, but the term people in Argentina, you know, it has an element of nation and has an element of the poor as well. It's not just simply the people. It's got an, an, an idea of nationhood connected especially to popular classes. Um, and that school in Argentina, which was developed by Lucio Guerra, really, who was actually at Medellin, he was one of the main redactors of Puebla afterwards. And one could argue, arguably say that it's that subgroup of liberation theology that ends up winning within the Vatican. Um, you know, eschewed Marxist analysis focused far less on a kind of revolutionary you know, socialist status quo change, and much more on, you know, popular Christianity, popular practices, living with and working with the people, especially within their religiosity. Um, you know, and, and in fact, you know, in, in Argentina today, you have a whole school of, well, school's not the right word, a whole group of what's called cura vigeros, that is priests who work within the slums, which Bergoglio, you know, before he was Francis, he was Bergoglio, 
really promoted in Argentina who embrace this kind of theology and carry it out in, in practice. Um, so, you know, I, I see his embrace of Gutierrez as part of this unity issue, you know, especially in a different context, post-Cold War and the socialism and so forth, you know, a kind of attempt to bring the other type of liberation theology within, completely within the fold of the church and forget those past divisions. Would any other, anyone else like to take up this theme? No? Um, as a side note, if you want to read any of this, the main figure today of this theology of the people is an Argentine Jesuit whose name is Juan Carlos Canone. He's, he's getting up there in, in, in age, but he's written a lot about this. There's a few interviews that he online that you can find about him and Pope Francis, and he was actually uh, Pope Francis's Greek professor in seminary. In, uh, Mr. Weigel brought up uh, the new evangelization as a, as a core element of uh, the papacy and, in fact, an epical uh, change, in fact. And I, and I would love to hear more about this from some of the other panelists as well. I'm sure some of the audience will, will engage with this as well. Uh, Father Reese, would you like to start? Yeah, uh, I agree with George that I think that uh, uh, the Pope has been uh, influenced by evangelicals. I mean, even uh, when he came out on the balcony and uh, asked the people to pray over him before he gave them a blessing. Uh, this is something he learned uh, at evangelical uh, uh, meetings where, you know, the evangelical ministers came up to him and said, well, you know, we have this custom of praying over the person who's going to preach. Is that okay? Can we do that with you? And he says, sure. And he kneels down. You have all these evangelical ministers imposing hands. And uh, conservative Catholic took a picture. And in the conservative Catholic uh, newspaper in Argentina, the headline was, Archbishop apostatizes. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, George is absolutely right. Rather than just being anti-evangelical, he learned from the evangelicals, you know, a gospel-based message. Um, and within, I think it's next week, his document on evangelization is going to come out. And that's going to be quite interesting. Uh, he has already said that he thinks the absolute best document on evangelization that has ever been produced by the church is Evangelii Nuziandi of Paul VI. He had to go all the way back to Paul VI uh, for this document, which I found rather amazing, uh, considering how the new evangelization was such a big deal for uh, Benedict and for John Paul II. Uh, you know, as far as uh, Francis is concerned, he wants to go back to Pope uh, Paul VI in terms of what evangelization is and how evangelization should be done. So tune in next week uh, and we'll find out, uh, you, know, what he, you know, what he has to say and it would be very interesting to see this question of how he was impacted by, uh, by evangelicals, how many, how many footnotes there are to John, Paul, and Benedict, and uh, how much this is all based on uh, the writings of Paul VI. Um, 
as, as Tom surely knows, anyone who has tracked the history of this idea of a new evangelization uh, knows from the get-go that its proximate origin is 1975 with Evangelii Nunziandi. Paul VI was deeply worried uh, that the church had lost a sense of missionary fervor and evangelical uh, energy in the uh, two decade, decade at that time uh, since the Second Vatican Council. It's widely thought that the principal drafter of Evangelii Nunziandi was a Latin American. Um, uh, the uh, Brazilian Dominican, uh, Lucas Moreira Neves, who later became the prefect of the Congregation for Bishops under John Paul II. Uh, I would trace a line from Evangelii Nunziandi to the 1985 Extraordinary Synod on the 20th anniversary of Vatican II, where the Synod Fathers defined the church as a communion of disciples and mission, through the 1990 uh, encyclical of John Paul II, Redem Torres Missio, uh, where the Pope writes that the church doesn't have a mission, the church is a mission. Uh, through the development of this image of the new evangelization, which comes to a particularly sharp biblical point in, uh, on January 6, 2001, when John Paul II concludes the Great Jubilee of 2000 with the apostolic letter Novo Millennio in Aunte, the central image of which is taken from Luke 5.5, 5, uh, where the Lord instructs the disciples to put out into the deep for a catch. I think that is Bergoglio's idea of the church in the modern world. That's what going to the periphery means. It means putting out into the roiling waters of a postmodern uh, culture that's deeply uh, conflicted for a catch. Uh, it's not just to be nice. It's to put out for a catch of, of future disciples. So I think that, that history, uh, we will look at those footnotes next week. Uh, and see uh, how how that's traced, but I think the it, it's absolutely correct to say that this whole idea of a new evangelization begins uh, in its current form in 1975 with Evangelii Nunziandi. But there's a there's a path to be traced from there to now. When. Um when the Libyans recently overthrew uh, the dict dictatorship of uh, Gaddafi, 40 years of it, one of the first things they did was um, to go to the grave site of Oman Mukhtar, who was a uh, Muslim spiritual leader and anti-colonial leader. And they went and they had a huge celebration there and handed out... Um, tokens that had his, his picture and his name on. Um, the memory of European colonialism in many Muslim countries is, is alive and well. It's within the living memory of many people. And it is associated, uh, Western power is associated with um, the introduction of Christian missionaries and the leveraging of Christian missionaries of colonial power to access, you know, the hearts and minds of Muslims. So this isn't, we don't have to go back to the kind of murky history of, 
you know, what did St. Francis really say to the Sultan, and were they friends, you know, interfaith friends, and had a nice conversation, or were they, you know, both military people who were trying to convert the other? We, we just have to go as far back as uh, early 20th century or mid 20th century even. So I think this is gonna be an extremely sensitive area. It'll be interpreted differently in different places. Uh, many Western Muslims, for example, understand, um, appreciate actually uh, Christians who witness to their faith because they want to maintain social space and public space for religious life and public expressions of religion. They would rather not see a completely secularized society. And so as long as there's no coercion or political power or force being used uh, to propagate um, religious views, they're comfortable with that because it, it does create the space for public religion. But in many parts of the Muslim world, just um, these kind of words, mission, um, are going to create barriers. So I think uh, it'll be interesting to see um, how the how this mission is phrased and how uh, it could be understood, especially in the context of uh, the problems right now in the Middle East um, between Christian minorities and, and Muslims. And to just add one more thing in terms of, I guess, the urgency that this kind of mission might be seen from within the perspective of the Catholic Church. I mean, we know that the, the Pope's first visit, you know, outside, um, you know, it was Brazil, basically. Um, between 1970 and 2010, the percentage of the population that identifies itself as Catholic in Brazil fell from 92% to 65%. I mean, that, you know, that's a dramatic drop. And in Mexico, between 2000 and 2010, that is 10 years, it fell from 88% to 83%. Now, these are the two largest Catholic countries in the world. If these drops were to continue at the same rate, by 2025, only 50% of the Latin American population will identify itself as Catholic. And that gives you a measure of the urgency that Francis probably, you know, and others in the Catholic Church feel in terms of the need for outreach, you know, for heading towards the periphery. Sister Joan, you spoke um, passingly of the uh, Vatican's survey of parishes here in the United States. And I wonder if, uh, if you could say a bit more about what you see in that and also others about there's, there's been much talk about, about its surprising nature and its utility or not, uh, what it's asking, whom it's asking, what of. Uh, could you start us off with that conversation? Well, I could try. I haven't studied the document that closely to do a, a real uh, content analysis of it, but I've been in a lot of groups where it's being talked about. And there's, there's obviously... This has aroused in the Catholic population, uh, I think, uh, at least uh, the, the people who are talking in front of me, uh, a sign of, um, of, of unusual um, possibility. Like, but, but there's also, at the same time, that, that, uh, those comments come with a, a semicolon, not with a period. <laughs> On the other side of the semicolon is... The whole notion of, is it a scam? Is it a ruse? Will it go anywhere? And the classic Catholic symbol of that problem comes from Paul VI's commission on the rights and duties of women. 
where of, a, of the, the group of 76, of that group of 76, 72 uh, recommended uh, the changes, uh, among which was uh, the, the um, change in, in our attitudes toward contraception. Four did not. And, and uh, those four prevailed. So the Catholic layperson said, if you don't want the answer, don't ask the question. So, so what you have here is, if, if this fails, and by, my definition of failure is, if the average layperson does not see this as, as serious material taken seriously, the kind of thing I was saying earlier, I, I believe that it will only catapult us into an even worse despair. Because you have people now looking at this at this um, beautiful man, and I, and I do mean that. Uh, but but you, you know, they see him as pastoral. They're not sure he's prophetic. And they, they are not sure whether or not he really is a reformer or a rhetorician. So there's, there's a, it's out there, and if you pay no attention to it, and uh, if, if you go into it with an undefined notion of its real purpose. If, if, it, if your purpose is not to listen, then say what your purpose is. If you're going to listen, uh, I, I mean, it's a crossroads. It can be a moment of great renewal, and it can be a moment of, of uh, solidified and confirmed depression. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Professor Petrella, and then we're, uh, Mr. Weigel, okay. Good. <laughs> um, I think it's important to understand what this so-called survey is and isn't. Uh, it's not a plebiscite. Uh, the Catholic Church doesn't do doctrine by plebiscite. And it would be very unfortunate if anyone were to suggest that this is uh, a kind of plebiscite. It's a rather crude instrument for trying to get some data for the bishops who will be meeting in the Synod both uh, next year and the following year uh, to work with. Synods, as Father Reese knows better than anyone up here, among, are among the most stultifyingly boring exercises in the history of Christendom. Uh, Athanasius would go out of his mind at a synod. He would also go out of his mind at a 10-minute clock sitting in front of him, too, I suspect. Uh, this survey is an attempt to get something of a reading from pastoral leaders as to the reception uh, of the church's settled teaching on uh, the ethics of, uh, of marital love, uh, the, the life uh, ethic, which I think the Pope knows we have done a rather miserable job of explaining. I think the Pope understands that the church has to do a much better job of explaining the yes that lies behind every no uh, that the Catholic Church articulates. Uh, and I think he's wanting to lift up those yeses through the synod process. Uh, it seems to me you don't need a plebiscite or a survey to understand that uh, marriage culture uh, is in deep trouble all over the world. Uh, 
that uh, spouses are traded uh, in uh, as if they were uh, out-of-date automobiles. Uh, there's still too much of the world where uh, women are treated as property for the sake of uh, in, uh, in marriage. Uh, one doesn't need a plebiscite or a survey to understand that there is a tremendous degradation of culture uh, of men, but especially of women, uh, in a multi-million dollar global pornography industry that's a pastoral plague of which any confessor can tell you at great uh, length. Uh, and there is what the Pope has, I think, accurately described uh, as a coarsening of our common life, uh, an attempt to measure human beings by their utility rather than their dignity, uh, even within the context of marriage and the family. So those are some of the uh, really large-scale issues that I hope this uh, synod will address uh, and that this uh, survey will help bring to the surface of the Catholic and ecumenical and indeed in a religious discussion for these issues of the degradation of persons uh, surely involve all of us. While uh, Professor uh, Petrella is, is winding up, I'd like to invite those of you with questions to uh, uh, pick one of the microphones here and, and we'll uh, start our conversation with the audience in just a second. Just to, to add one thing, not specifically about the survey, but kind of the, you know, the, the broader issue. Um, you know, I think there's a reality about Pope Francis. On the one hand, he's a guy who obviously really seeks to focus on the poor. Um, in Argentina, you know, he, he really worked on that. He walked the slums, spent time in the slums. He was very active in support of organizations um, that fought against human trafficking in Argentina. Um, that fought against sexual slavery, prostitution, you know, um, uh, narcotrafico, um, Drugs. drug trafficking, and so forth. I mean, so he's a guy very committed to this and has a progressive agenda when it comes to that. On the other hand, I mean, he's a 76-year-old Argentine priest. Um, you know, so there are other issues where he's just not, you know, and the Vatican isn't either, you know, and there's just two little examples. One that relates to art, you know, in 2004, Leon Ferrari, who's a very famous Argentine artist who actually, you know, won the grand prize at the Venice Biennale, which is you know, the most important art biennale in the world, maybe three years ago. Um, he had an art exhibition in Argentina, which Bergoglio at the time, you know, tried to get shut down, claiming it was blasphemous. Um, and there, if you want to ever Google it, his most famous image, which is, you know, it can be seen, I guess, as blasphemous, but it's also very cool. It's a piece called... Um, Western Christian civilization, and it's basically a Jesus image, you know, as you would see an Eddie cross at a church, crucified on an American warplane. Um, very powerful, obviously. And then, you know, George, I think in relation to the letter you brought up, in terms of the, you know, his when you cited his his view of Gnosticism to the to the the sisters in in Buenos Aires, I believe, you know, I think it's the same letter. I think it's a letter that caused an uproar when it was leaked by somebody in the press in Argentina because it was a letter written in the context of, you know, the passing of a gay marriage law in Argentina. Argentina is the first country in Latin America to have gay marriage. Um, you can go get married in Buenos Aires. Now, the city of Buenos Aires actually promotes, you know, wants people to come get married in, in Buenos Aires as a kind of part of tourism as well. 
Um, you know, so that letter was leaked to the press. It was written in the context of gay marriage, and it also included lines, something like, I'm not quoting because I don't remember exact words, but this was more or less, that, you know, gay marriage was the devil's work. You know, so there's also that very conservative strain there, which is part of his, his worldview, you know, and that, that obviously, you know, is hotly debated in Argentina also when it comes to, you know, how progressive this guy really. He's very progressive on some things and far less so on others. Thank you all. Um, uh, as our questioners step up, uh, I joked before that you'd be making short speeches disguised as questions, but try to keep it roughly brief. Uh, please introduce yourself, and if you have a question directed for a single panelist, let us know. Otherwise, anyone can take up. Go ahead, sir. Yes, my name is Matthias Speyer, and I uh, teach pastoral care and counseling at Christian Theological Seminary in Indianapolis. And uh, the last comment actually is a very good segue for my question. Uh, because uh, while uh, Pope Francis has made this uh, somewhat flip comment about who am I to judge about uh, homosexuality, um, I have worked with students, I have worked with patients who have gone through hell because of the church's stance on homosexuality. I have had a student in the counseling program that I direct, who uh, grew up gay, knowing that he was gay, and who, by his Catholic mother, when he was like 12 or something like that, uh, and there were, there were people being shot, execution style, and his mother, because they were gay, and his mother said, that's what should happen to these go uh, to these uh, uh, um, what was the word, these uh, bastards or something like that. Uh, so uh, equating homosexuality to the devil's work uh, leads many people to suicide. So my question is, and there are many other examples, women that were abused uh, by priests and so on. Uh, I've seen a lot of folks being just tortured to the degree of wanting to commit suicide, and many people did it. So my question is, while the Pope is now ready to go to the poor that are materially poor, and that, that can be a very popular thing. Who will disagree with that, right? But what about those that were impoverished mentally, spiritually, by the church? What's the mission of this Pope, and what reparations will you expect from him in these areas? Any? Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> we save the easy questions for the first uh, speaker. Sister Joan, would you it's, like to start? Yeah, it's a, a, a very serious and timely question, and I don't think uh, is going to be able to be ducked. Uh, much longer. I mean, once you have a position, up until this uh, this time in our own lives, we had no credible position on the nature of um, of homosexuality. We taught it as a choice, and we punished choosers who chose against our cho our, our choices. Uh, that's getting more and more difficult to do on this subject, which is where the experience of the church has come in. Uh, we, we are quite, um, 
we are quite experienced, at least in, in uh, modern history, uh, with, with apologies, with retractions, uh, either real or defined, and uh, must, must examine these questions very carefully. Uh, you know, uh, when my own religious order was beginning in the United States in 1856, uh, nobody called home to get permission to do anything because you couldn't get them if you tried. There weren't any telephones, and you made decisions. Now our problem is not, not enough communication. It's too much sometimes. So we're giving answers uh, that we don't have. We're giving ans 19th century answers, these what people are now calling the catechetical answers, to uh, answers of the heart. It seems to me, as, as I, I read, and I have been reading intensely, uh, the things both written about Francis and said by Francis himself, is that this 76-year-old man has a foot in, in both sides of these questions. And we would be well served if we would slow down our answers um, and, and uh, provide more guidance, counseling, and concern than um, times in purgatory or how to get out of there. And we wouldn't be entrapped so much or entrapping people as we have in past periods. I, I think it's a very serious issue for the church, and it's going to get more serious because as, uh, as our science changes, our theology is going to f be forever under scrutiny. I don't uh, think that remark um, at the press conference on the plane on the way back from Rio uh, was, was a flip remark. I think it was the uh, comment of a dedicated, experienced pastor about a specific pastoral situation. Here is someone, I think he would have said this about someone of heterosexual inclination, who is struggling with chastity, as just about 99.9% .9 of the human race has done since the third chapter of Genesis, uh, and is trying to live an upright life by, uh, as the Pope made very clear in that press conference, by the, uh, by the uh, teaching of the church. Uh, so who was he to judge that person's circumstance if the person was making a genuine effort to live an upright life according to the moral uh, law that we believe we know by both revelation and reason? So I don't think that's a flip answer. Um, so that's point one on that. Uh, it seems to me, point two, in light of some of the uh, issues we've already been discussing, and I wish I had, had mentioned the trafficking uh, issue and the sla sexual slavery issue uh, earlier in my own remarks, because uh, I had the extraordinary experience for several years of having one of my closest friends be the first U.S. Special Ambassador to combat human trafficking and listening to his tales of absolute frustration with some of America's closest European allies who were not about to address this problem because they had embraced the sexual revolution uh, all the way. 
which they took as, un, as, as involving uh, the legalization of prostitution, uh, wide open uh, uh, public culture of unbridled uh, promiscuity. Uh, and it was the stories of the little girls he met in those camps in Thailand uh, that just uh, broke your heart. In that kind of environment, uh, now lifted up by some of the new Gnostics, and I will go back to that phrase because I think that's exactly what this is. Uh, in that kind of an environment, uh, figuring out a way to lift up uh, chastity, uh, right living out of uh, one's sexual life, uh, is an enormous challenge. Uh, and yet we better figure out how to address it because the human wreckage all around us, the walking wounded on those battlefields that the Pope is talking about, are very much, in many cases, uh, the product of a sexual revolution that has done immense damage uh, to men uh, and especially to women. Professor Manson, and then we'll go to your question. I know because we don't want to take forever on one question, but it is an important one. I guess I just want to just go back and think. Um, I remember when, uh, what did we call them, the culture wars, uh, the 80s? Um, and I remember when Muslim Americans first started getting uh, politically active. Uh, it was the conservative Christian churches and the Catholic Church that, that, felt that they had natural allies and, allies and Muslims as, as being socially conservative on these issues. Mm -hmm. um, and some, there were, you know, some Muslims got involved and, and started to engage in some kind of coalition building on these socially conservative issues. But pretty soon, both as a practical matter and as a matter of principle, um, the majority of Muslims in America, at least, where, where these things were really, you know, were on the advance of these issues being discussed, um, Muslims decided that this wasn't a, a proper way to proceed and, and really disengaged from these kind of alliances. As a practical matter, the reality was, as a small minority, um, if we allowed the, um, the uh, limitation on people's freedoms because of the majority's uh, religious beliefs, then it would come back, it would certainly bounce back on us pretty soon. And then on a principled basis, a deeper examination of our, of our own um, history revealed that uh, e e throughout classical Islamic civilization, um, part of, of religious freedom for communities, I mean, religious freedom was granted to collectivities rather than individuals in the pre-modern period, but part of that religious freedom was their, their right to decide family law on their own. So throughout a you know, thousand years of Islamic civilization, the different churches and different Jewish denominations and Zoroastrians had their own family law, including um, laws that violated uh, Islamic law, what Muslims could do for themselves. So Muslims have begun to, to really separate these things, the morality that they apply to themselves, which doesn't speak to the pastoral issue of, of gay Muslims. That's something different, and this isn't the panel for that. We could speak about it. But certainly the um, began quite clearly to separate 
their own morality from the civic rights of individuals to the point where Muslim organizations have increasingly supported uh, the rights of, um, of gay people to enjoy all the other uh, uh, civic rights that others have. So I, what I just want to say here is that it's interesting to see, you know, when it comes to um, very often Muslim communities and perhaps some others are responding to the uh, Catholic Church's influence in this area, especially in America, where the influence is so strong in the public sphere, but increasingly is separating, um, separating its position uh, from the church, despite agreeing, um, agreeing on this, you know, some kind of natural family law, but looking at it legally very differently. Thank you very much, and thank you for your patience, ma'am. Go ahead. I'm Kathy Grossman. I'm with Religion News Service. Um, in my prior life, for two decades at USA Today, I, I've lost count of how many stories I did in which I played Father Reese against George Weigel. Um, <laughs> so it's entertaining. Don't do it here. I know. Well, actually, I was just about to. Sorry. Um, it's been entertaining watching all the deference going on here. But um, I want to. I want to come up with um, a question about the um, survey that the that the Pope has requested. I straighten me out here. I didn't understand it at all as a plebiscite on doctrine. I don't think at all that the Pope is asking for a Catholic vote up or down on whether uh, divorced and remarried Catholics should have access to communion. Um, I thought it was an attempt by asking the bishops to do this to spin these guys around and shove them out the door and make them listen to the lived experience of Catholics in the church. And since he's always had access to what the bishops think, their flock thinks, I think he wanted to see if he couldn't get some, some raw data. I mean, of course, he can always get the numbers from Kara and Lemoyne and the Catholic youth sociologists. There's a ton of data out there on what American Catholics think about most of the issues that are on that survey. But he didn't ask for that. He asked for the bishops to go out and talk to people. So what do you think is the reason he did that? Father Reese, you've been silent for a few minutes. <laughs> Back to you. Yeah. I, um, if you look at the questions, they're not terribly user-friendly. Um, some of them have, you know, lots of abstractions in them. Uh, bishops that are taking these to their people usually pick just, you know, two, three, four, and use those as, as jumping off for discussion and and responses, but I think you're absolutely right. What he wants is for the bishops to listen before they go to uh, to Rome for the synod. The most successful synod I th I think that we had, at least of the ones that I attended, uh, was the synod on Africa, uh, the first synod on Africa, and that took they took almost five years of. Uh, preparation for that synod because the Africans refused to be rushed, you know. Uh, you know, they wanted to take time and listen to their people. Uh, the problem we have here is, you know, the synod's next October. Uh, the results of this so-called survey are supposed to be end by the middle of January. Uh, this is an impossible timeline, but that's because then they have other documents that they are going to be preparing and sending out for further discussion until finally they come in. Uh, the bishops I talked to that were interested in doing something, 
said that they were, you know, they were talking to their priest councils, they were sending the questionnaire to their pastors and telling their pastors, go talk to your people about this. Or if they had a pastoral council come, meeting coming up, they'd put this on the agenda. So uh, some of them are, are doing that kind of listening. But I think that's, uh, is, is what, I think you're, you're accurate in saying he, he wants the bishops to listen to their people before they come to Rome. Kathy, why do you or anyone else imagine that a bishop with two functioning ears and a half a dozen active brain cells does not know what Catholic people think about these issues and the wide range of opinion that you'll find on that? I mean, it's just, that's just frankly uh, not a very plausible suggestion. You don't think people like to be asked? Well, I think people have been talking about these things for 45 years. It's not like there's been no discussion in the Catholic Church about contraception, uh, marriage law, etc. The discussion is going on all the time. So that's point one. I think, frankly, it's demeaning of some very hardworking men to say they don't know what their people think. Some of them don't. So why did, we the, can Pope both ask, name why did the Pope ask them to do this? Well, first, that's my second point. My understanding of this survey, Tom can correct me on this. Tom and I are always deferential to each other, by the way. <laughs> um, my understanding of this survey is that this was a brainchild of the Synod office in the Curia, which the Pope accepted during a meeting of the Synod Council over the objections of some uh, Catholic leaders on that synod council who thought this would turn into a kind of plebiscitory circus, uh, which serves no one's purposes. The deeper question for the future of this pontificate, it seems to me, not just for this synod, but for future synods, is how do we make this process work? The synod process since the council, with some of the rare exceptions that Tom mentioned, is a disaster. Everyone is bored. Everyone goes away grumpy. Uh, the process is not a genuine one of, of serious conversation. So insofar as the Pope signed off on this survey, which was not his idea, I'm virtually certain, it may be that he's just trying to shake up the variables, shake up the process a bit, and see if we can't get something resembling an adult exchange of serious views at a synod, because that would be a real breakthrough. Uh, yes, ma'am. Yes, I'm Marianne Stenger from Louisville, Kentucky, which is the residing place of the current head of mm -hmm. the bishops. Elected here last week. Elected here last week. Mm -hmm. And in the Courier-Journal, which is the newspaper of Louisville, Kentucky, there was an editorial this past Sunday indicating what they saw as a strong contrast between Pope Francis and the model that he has shown the world and Archbishop Kurtz, who speaks some of the rhetoric um, that Pope Francis does, but in the view of the courier, and in my view, has not shown it. And so I would 
actually appreciate some um, response about the American bishops and what they take as the most important issues um, in relationship to what it appears Pope Francis considers important issues. Thank you. Okay, thanks. That's a big development in the American church here. Sister Joan, do you want to start us off? Well, I, I just, I, either I'm, I'm missing a plot on this or, or we're not talking about the plot. We're walking around it. I still think the first, the first question that was raised is, is a very important question, and that is, um, what happens to this document? Now, you're going to have cultural, different cultural approaches to this document. There's no doubt about it. When a group like this has to sit around and wonder, wonder, honestly wonder, uh, what's this supposed to do? As far as I'm concerned, that's a very bad document at the outset. Are you asked, I mean, if you want, if you want the bishops to sit down and talk, uh, say, write a document that says, tell us what you would like the bishops to talk about. But if you're going to ask these people where they are on the topic, they think, as I think any good conversationalist has the right to assume, that, that if you take information from them, you'll give them back something of that information and its value. So I, I think it's dangerous. Say outside, I'm, I'm willing to accept any definition that you give to this, but I think you ought to be starting with one. I can't imagine doing it in a classroom in another way. So I, I, I can't dismiss this question as meaningless. I, I think it's a smoldering volcano, and I think it smolders out of multiple cultures, and there's no doubt of that. Uh, uh, we're, we're, the item is brought up at the end. What, how do, what do American bishops see as important as opposed? The American bishops also got their, their cues from the Vatican in these last years. They didn't make those things up. So our, when, if, if, this, if this plebiscite is, has a purpose only of identifying topics which we will all then take seriously, and conversationally, and um, pastorally, and locally. That would be enough for me. But the confusion is not because people are going into this or watching it out of their own cultural, psychological, uh, social needs. And, and that's, that's a viper's tangle. Father Reese? Uh, well, in the church, like everywhere else, comparisons are odious. So, uh, you know, comparing Archbishop Kurtz and, and Pope uh, Francis is not something I would want to get into. Um, just in terms of, of uh, Archbishop Kurtz, uh, this is a guy who, as a, a priest, got an MSW, a Master's in Social Work, because he wanted to work with the poor. That sounds pretty good. He helped set up the... In fact, he set up the first office for justice uh, in the, uh, uh, the Diocese of Pittsburgh. Uh, so, you know, he, he does have that background of being concerned about poor people. People also report, uh, you know, that when he was pastor of a parish, he was very, very pastoral. Now, does this mean he's... He's not going to be a culture warrior? Absolutely not. Uh, you know, he is, he's on board, I think, with the, 
the bishops uh, uh, fight uh, on issues like uh, abortion, gay marriage, uh, uh, the uh, fight against the contraceptive mandate. Uh, but he's also, I think, going to have more issues on the table, uh, concerned for poor people, uh, you know, as the bishops have been concerned about cuts in food stamps, cuts in the budget. Uh, you know, numerous letters are going up from the bishops' committees uh, defending the poor against the House of Representatives and the, uh, uh, the budget cuts that are going on there. Um, so I think it's, you know, what we're seeing with the U.S. bishops is a slight course correction. Um, you know, as they try and figure out, you know, how to, uh, uh, how to function uh, as a bishop uh, with, uh, with Pope Francis. Coming back, uh, we need a mic. There we go. I have personally always felt sorry for Archbishop Kurtz, whom I like enormously, because Joseph Conrad wrecked his last name uh, by writing Lord Jim. That was a literary reference, boys and girls. I'm sorry that the AAR doesn't pick up on it. Um, the election of Archbishop Kurtz, it seems to me, was a confirmation of the essential uh, direction the Bishops' Conference has taken for the past six years, not just the last three years. Uh, the bishops who would be identified with a dramatic course correction, to use Tom's image, got by my count 11.4% of the vote uh, in the presidential balloting. So uh, I think we can say that Archbishop Kurtz, in the fullness of his uh, range of interests, and concerns represents a broad consensus uh, on the part of the bishops. Uh, it was little noted, but should have been, uh, that his first significant act as president of the conference was to appoint a new uh, chairman for Catholic Relief Services, Archbishop Paul Coakley of Oklahoma City. Uh, and those who know how to read the tea leaves know that that was uh, an appointment uh, intended to strengthen the Catholic identity uh, of Catholic Relief Services and to examine some of the entanglement of that marvelous agency uh, with um, U.S. government funding that may create um, a certain set of problems. I think the other thing that needs to be understood in terms of U.S. bishops and the Holy See, and I speak of the Holy See in general, not simply of of, uh, of Pope Francis, is that for the bishops of the United States, the um, issues of life, uh, of religious freedom, uh, for them of the death penalty, uh, the question of, of the nature of marriage and who can be said to be married, whom the state can legitimately affirm as being married, th these are not primarily Catholic doctrine issues. They're constitutional issues. They have to do with the character of the American Republic. 
They have to do with the range of state power. Uh, they have to do with the attempt, uh, as some perceive it, by uh, state power uh, to enforce uh, a new Gnosticism uh, on society through what Benedict XVI provocatively but not unintelligently uh, called a dictatorship of relativism, precisely the kind of dictatorship of relativism, I might add, that prevents the government of the Netherlands from dealing with the trafficking issue because it wants to keep uh, the sex trade in Amsterdam uh, alive and needs uh, bodies, literally, uh, to do that. So uh, I think the bishops are proceeding ahead uh, on the course they've, uh, they've charted, uh, and I think Archbishop Kurtz and Pope Francis are going to get along just fine. We have uh, time for one last question. Thank you for your patience, ma'am. Thank you. Uh, my name is Phyllis Zagano. I have a research appointment at Hofstra University in New York. I, I also write a column that runs in the United States in the National Catholic Reporter. And I'm just wondering if, in relation to the preparatory document for the 2014 Synod on the Laity, if someone can help me out with the sentence that Sister Joan mentioned uh, that's in the pre pre preface to the actual questions. Uh, the concern, the deep concern evidenced uh, by Rome in the document, which has been now spread around the world, um, to forms of feminism hostile to the church. So this would be my question. Could someone explain to me what that sentence means? <laughs> what, is, what are the forms of feminism? And more importantly, what is the church? Sister, I believe this is your question to begin with. <laughs> well, uh, Phyllis, my concern is that that, uh, that question isn't followed by another question, uh, the deeper question, why in heaven's name would some forms of feminism emerge that are hostile to the church? When we're talking about the, and somebody uh, uh, mentioned it earlier, I thought quite well uh, in, in uh, quoting Pope Francis saying, look, if we're losing membership, uh, it, we, we, we can't blame it on the evangelicals. We have to ask what, what language we're not speaking. I think that same kind of answer applies here. If there are forms of feminism, though frankly, I can't name any form of feminism. That, uh, and I, I thank you for pointing out that feminism is not monolithic. Uh, this whole notion that if a feminist is coming at you, call your mother quickly because you're in danger from something. I'm never sure what. But the, the, the whole notion that there are feminists who are hostile to the church has an historical foundation of great value and should be of greater interest. When you realize the recommendations, for instance, that came out of, um, again, Paul VI's commission on, uh, on the duties of women, and the possibilities that came out of that, of that, of that document and, and that study. And uh, the ones that were ever implemented have, were then uh, destroyed, dismissed, uh, um, ignored. And, and today, you're fighting again for altar girls. And then you wonder why, after from 76 to, to 2013, there would be women standing up in our churches and saying, we don't belong here, they don't want us here. We have no identification with that. 
If that sounds hostile uh, to, to some types, I can only tell you it sounds like the morning news to me. When I was uh, preparing Witness to Hope and, and wanted to do some uh, interviewing about John Paul II's attempts to begin a papal theology of, of women, a papal feminism, as some have called it, I went to the University of St. Thomas in Houston, where there were, at the time, three very feisty members of the philosophy and theology department, all women. We had a great conversation over uh, some really bad tacos. And um, damn, this is a tough crowd today. What is the matter with you guys? <laughs> Nobody laughs at anything. And at the end of it's this, funny, knowing George. that I it's was... It's not funny. It's not funny. Bad tacos are not no, funny, Phyllis? No. Get a life, no. will you? Excuse me. I mean, me. come on. The problem of women in the church is not funny. It's not something to be joked about. I'm not joking about that. I'm joking about the tacos. Thank you very much. And the point of this, if you will permit me, was what one of those women said to me, which I think is quite true. She said, knowing I was going back to Rome, tell your buddy the Pope that we're not the problem, men are. There's something to think about. Well, of course there's something to think about because the definitions of women are, 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 have all been defined by men. Everything that's been written about us has been written without us. Nobody ever asks us how we would define a woman. So of course, the, 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 the patriarchal structures have built in this conditioning and this definition and this genderization. Nobody ever started the question of men and women from the point of view of human nature. So there, there's, a, there's so much under this that has to be scraped away so we can get to some really good conversations. This pope is not wrong when he says we need a profound theology of women. We don't have a profound theology of women, though to be quite frank, if you push me on that one, I'm not sure why we need a theology of women. Uh, we, we need a theology of, of, uh, of, of humanity. And we have got to begin to understand that the patriarchal system got us into this mess. And until, as church and people, uh, we reject that, we'll, we'll go around on these, on these questions again for the next hundred years. Professor Madsen. I mean, as a, as a woman who cares about uh, all people, including women, and who uh, I'm sitting here looking at uh, Professor Joan McAuliffe, who um, we've sat on opposite sides of the table too many times at Christian Muslim forums, uh, she being the only Catholic woman and me being the only Muslim woman with a lot of uh, men, older men. Um, and I guess that's why maybe for me, you know, in a way I think uh, Islam has always had decentralized authority and when the caliph, which wasn't doing much anyways, when the caliphate was overthrown, we became even more decentralized and in the chaos, there's a, there can be a lot of problems that emerge, but a lot of creativity. I think um, when I look at Catholic-Muslim relations, I, I don't think primarily of those 
high-level you know, discussions, the ones that come out of the Vatican or the Pontifical Institute, as interesting as they were, I think about all of the women who, uh, Catholic women who I've uh, been with in so many different places, uh, you know, a dozen times a year, uh, engaging in social justice work, discuss, discussing human dignity, um, and, and so many other important issues. So I guess in the end, what I'd like to say is I think uh, from my perspective, yes, who the Pope is is important, but it's not everything. And it's not even everything, um, it's not necessarily the most important thing for, uh, for Catholic-Muslim relations in, as it happens, which is why even when Pope Benedict said what he did and upset many people, in fact, in, in, in most places where we've had long-standing uh, relationships, our relationships did not change at all because we said, well, we know you're the the true representatives of the, of the church and we had a lot we had a lot of trust so we know that there's there's a lot going on um, and that continues to happen among the people of the Catholic Church and there's a lot of great engagement um, and that's gonna happen no matter who's um, who's in office although it's much better to have someone who seems to be a you know a very lovely person um, in that in that office, and someone who certainly won't won't harm us, and with I hope God willing we can engage in also some some beneficial work. Father Reese, uh, back to your question uh, of what, what would be a radical feminist as defined by the Vatican? No, and no, it, forms uh, of feminism. That's all they said. Pardon me. Forms of feminism. Well. The form of, they tend to use the term radical feminist uh, and as opposed to the good feminist. Um, and it's pretty simple. You know, according to their definition, a radical feminist is a feminist who is in favor of women's ordination, abortion, or birth control. Uh, if you're in favor of equal pay for women, no problem. If you're in favor of equal education opportunities for women, no problem. If you're in favor of equal political rights and opportunities for women, no problem, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's, you know, it's those three areas uh, where the, uh, the Vatican would, uh, would have problems. But what is church? Oh. That's... Well, I, I forget who it was, the Canadian theologian who went through the documents of Vatican Council and found that there was like 20 different definitions of church. Uh, in, maybe it was 25, I forget, uh, in, in that document. I hate using the word church, uh, and I, in, especially when the media uses it, because really what they usually mean is hierarchy. Uh, and uh, the church is the people of God. It's, you know, I mean, there's so many uh, ways of looking at the church, as, as you obviously know. Well, this has been uh, such a terrific session. Uh, we've ranged north and south and in and out and up and down and back and forth. And uh, our panelists uh, deserve a very hearty warm of applause. Thank you to Father Reese, Professor Petrella, Professor Madsen, Mr. Weigel, Sister Joan. Thank you all so much. <laughs>